All right, guys, so before we dive in, I just have to mention that without my normal setup in my usual place, we had a couple small issues with this one. Mainly just that my system that records guests from their browser missed the first minute or two on Whitley's side. So sadly for me, you don't hear how complimentary he was about my intro or how appreciative he was to those I mentioned for contributing to and or endorsing his latest book. But c'est la vie. To make it work, I had to just string the first few things I said together in a not-so-awkward way and come in where the file starts. Then my recording platform threw another error shortly after, so we just moved over to Skype because it's better to be safe than sorry. Recording is an important part of this podcasting thing, I'm told. But we work out the kinks pretty quickly, and everything about this overall really interesting and weird episode returns to normalcy. That said. Enjoy! The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, unless you really do. Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Where would we be without THC? The highest chat show. Great Carl Wood and Company. Side chatters, this is the way from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And what we can know about the experiences of those who have high strangeness encounters with otherworldly or extra-dimensional beings, either on a routine basis or a random one, is actually quite a lot if you pursue a personal understanding of it all. But at the same time, it's not nearly enough. The conclusions of experiencers themselves range from these beings wanting to warn us about planetary destruction and educate us on their role in the human story, to a campaign of extracting sexual fluids, creating hybrids, and even going after the human soul itself. With many reports being so odd and foreign to human logic that it's hard to discern if they have any common agenda at all. What is becoming more clear is that we're dealing with beings that have complex mastery over space and time, as well as consciousness, perception, memory, and telepathic communication. And if that wasn't enough, just add to the stack the thoughts of today's returning guest, Whitley Strieber, that it might also have something to do with the dead. And it seems like the possibilities are just as wide-ranging and varied as they ever could be. Well, I'm sure most people listening are very aware of the rich history of ongoing experiences Whitley has had with these visitors since his book Communion and its iconic cover achieved legendary status way back in 1987. But let it be known that over the years, his writing hasn't slowed down, now authoring over 40 books, both fiction and nonfiction, with many being bestsellers and several adapted for the screen, both big and small. And most recently, he has come out with one of the best books on high strangeness encounters with these visitors that I've read in quite some time, entitled Them. Which, and it's no surprise to hear, is currently number one in Amazon's Occult and Unexplained Mysteries category. In the book, he reproduces over a dozen letters he received after the release of Communion from people with similar and not-so-similar high strangeness experiences, 
and unpacks the meaning of them with the understanding of being 30 years wiser and having an extra three decades worth of reflection and research into whatever it is them are. You can find more Whitley on his website at unknowncountry.com, as well as on his own podcast, Dreamland, and I am psyched to have him back. The high-profile, high-strangeness experiencer, paranormal being, profiler, and captain of the SS Dreamland, Whitley Streber, welcome back to the higher side. Man, this is a real pleasure. Them is a great read, and it includes a preface by Mitch Horowitz, forward by Jacques Vallée, and afterward by Dr. Jeff Kripal, as well as praises from people like Hal Putoff, Diana Posolka, and even Colm Keller, the vice president of Bigelow Aerospace. So a lot of heavy hitters and big thinkers in this space coming to bat for you, it seems. The commonality being that most of these are the names of people who have definitely made me realize this whole thing is a lot more complex than just some similar-ish humanoids from another physical material space ball out there. There's an awful lot more we don't know about this than we assume we do. We're drifting into assumptions like this is definitely alien contact, and if you go on the internet, you'll find all of the different planets they come from and the names of the different species and we don't actually know any of that none of it and even if we are told by them i don't think it is would be sensible to believe it for a lot of reasons mhm mm mhm mm yeah i agree there's so much speculation out there it is really hard to know what is true but I tend to gravitate towards the people who are asking more questions rather than trying to pontificate the end-all, be-all answers like yourself and a lot of the people we just mentioned as being advocates for this book. So I think that's a beautiful thing. And part one of them looks at some really wild letters you received after communion came out from people describing their own experiences. and. Part two is, as Mitch Horowitz describes, the result of your long investigation into the official lies and the political sleight of hand that has distorted the record, obscured the true nature of the data, and made an objective, urgent scientific study near impossible in the United States. Both parts are interesting, but it's these letters that really blew my mind. Talk to us about the archive of letters you've amassed, which I believe are now held at Rice University, is that right? Yeah, they are held in the Archives of the Impossible, as it's called, at Rice University, along with a now huge archive of all sorts of different things, ranging from the medium, Stuart Alexander's papers, to Jacques Vallée's papers, to the letters, and many, many other things. The letters started archive started many years ago when we began to get a lot of letters. And this started about a week after Communion was published. When it was published, my impression was that the close encounter experience was very rare and that I would be among 50 or 100 people who have had it. And I thought it was a book that would interest people but not on a personal level, but just to interest them because it was such an unusual experience. However, that turned out not to be the case. The book's cover 
with a famous face with the big black eyes on it, was some kind of a mnemonic device that caused not just hundreds or thousands, but ultimately millions of people to remember seeing that face at some time in their lives. And the letters just within days began to literally pour in. And I was overwhelmed. I couldn't believe it. There would be three or four postmen coming up and just dumping boxes or bags of mail on our living room floor. And it was there in a great heap. I, I didn't know what to do. And I said, and how can we deal with this? We've got to figure out how to throw these out because even getting them out of the house seemed impossible. And she said, throw them out. We're not throwing them out. We're reading them. Hmm. I said, we can't read them. Look, at there's a thousand, two thousand letters right there. She said, well, you might not be able to read them, but I can read them. And she bought a letter opener and hired a secretary. And they read and cataloged thousands and thousands of letters over the next, I guess, 10 years. And that record, all of those letters ended up in a storage space in Texas, where we had moved after we lost our cabin in upstate New York. And we, <laughs> no one wanted them. No one cared at all. But Annie always said, keep them, Whitley, keep them. They will be important one of these days, because this is the record of contact. It is the record of first contact between human beings and whatever this is. Mm -hmm. And she knew this. I mean, she was a really, she was just an extraordinary human being. You know, the theme of my life has always been to keep things in question. And it's because of something Anne used to say. Anne would say, the human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. Mm. And if we had lived as a species by that from the beginning, it would be a different and far better world than it is. But right now, we cling to beliefs, and when others disagree with us, we very often and all too often start trying to kill each other. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the letters are there in the archive at Rice, and I did not pick ultra-strange letters. I picked a representative sample of letters. And strangeness beyond anything we understand now, and certainly beyond anything we talk about in the media, because it, it sounds so logical. People will come up with channeled information and aliens they talk to and this species and that species. But when you read these letters, you realize this may very well have to do with aliens, and there's something true here. And the truth is that this is the strangest thing that has ever happened to human beings. Mm. <laughs> what a setup. It's like you've done this before. And <laughs> big cheers to Anne and her perspective and her wisdom and having you hold on to these letters, because in the pre-internet world, if you weren't going to hold on to something, then it is probably gone. And I love that these letters are 30 years old. 
and written to you from people just looking for a little solidarity and to have someone listen. But I wanted to bring up the iconic cover and this paragraph about the large eyes, which tend to be one of the most reliable recurring themes. You write that the gigantic eyes of the visitors on the cover of Communion triggered a flood of memories in people around the world. They also triggered awe and fear. A question must be asked. When we look at these eyes, are we looking at the physical eyes of aliens who have naturally evolved in that way or at something that has been designed to overawe us? even something that is in some way part of us. While it's easy to assume that such strange-looking creatures must be from somewhere else in the universe, there is not enough evidence to close the question. In my experience, coming face-to-face -face with one of the visitors is almost like encountering a living mask. And I like that phrase, living mask, but based on your own research and experience, what do you think is under it? Is it even something they can take off or have control of? Well, that's the question, of course. What is that behind that? And why does that face, why do those big eyes trigger something in us? Because if you look back over across history to the very earliest times, the earliest gods, when we began to make imagery of the gods about around 5,000 BC is when it started, that the eyes tended to be very, very prominent. And they were called eye gods, in fact, by some anthropologists or paleoanthropologists. And it's because this triggers something in us. Now, why does it? Is it because we have been hardwired in some way to respond to these big eyes, or is it something else? I've been face-to-face -face with these eyes many times, and not in recent years, but... Oh, something seemed to have happened here. Um... <laughs> so I will find a place to stitch that together, but you were talking about the large eyes and how they seem to invoke something in us, and that maybe is by design. Well, the thing about the large eyes is you have to think about why would it be that they do evoke this in us? Because they certainly do. We are very eye-oriented. And I think it probably has something to do with the evolution of the brain and the way we are put together. I mean, I wouldn't completely discount the idea that someone intervened and designed us or redesigned us to be sort of susceptible to these eyes. But when you are with the visitors, you feel when the eyes come to you, they come into you. It isn't just someone looking at you. It is someone inside you. And it's as if part of you has gone out of yourself and is looking into you and seeing you in ways that you generally do not choose to see yourself. It's an incredibly intimate experience. And I've had enough of it, which is very <laughs> little. I've had, I'm talking about a few minutes over an entire lifetime, but those were very telling minutes.
So one of the themes of this book is to reopen the question, not only of what they are, which should be an open question, but of what we are and how we connect to them. Because there's a connection here of some kind that we don't understand. But at the same time, what is so absolutely fascinating is that their minds, and you can see this in the way they relate to people in the letters or don't, their minds are constructed, structured very differently from ours to the extent that you might say, and I speculate about this in the second part of the book, in the part on the brain, that their brains probably are configured differently from ours and very differently, I would expect. And therefore, they see the world differently. And this gets back to the alien issue. Are they aliens? But if they are, then I would just bet my bottom dollar that they are related to us in ways that are hidden from us. That this isn't just somebody from another planet who came and found us. That this is something so intimately connected with us that, yes, a component of it is physically different from us, but not aliens in the same way that we think. And give you an example of what I mean when I say a different brain, just how profound this is. If we look at dolphins, we know they're highly intelligent. We know they're almost as intelligent as we are. We don't know whether they're even more intelligent. They may be, are the same. We don't know. The reason we don't know all of these things is very simple. No matter what we do, in spite of the fact that we've lived on this earth with them for the entire history of our species anyway, we can't know what they're thinking. We cannot know what their language means. We can barely understand, and not very well at all, the hidden language of dogs and cats that live in our houses with us all the time. And it's because of the fact that the whole sensory apparatus and processing systems are different. Mm -hmm. Now, if we can't understand the song of the dolphin, and we can't understand what our dogs and cats are trying to say to us, then how can we expect that there would be an easy correspondence between us and these strange beings? And this is why I'm always so hesitant when someone comes to me to be on my show and to be on Dreamland and says, well, I channel the greys or I channel the Zetas <laughs> or something, I think to myself, I don't know whether or not you're telling me about your imagination or something real. I can't tell yeah. the difference. And we have to take that to heart. But even taking it to heart, and especially perhaps taking it to heart, we can begin to really see this whole experience in a different way and a new way yes well said it is really hard to even try to approach unpacking their logic and the reason for these experiences but one of the best approaches is 
to go over those commonalities that we see in a wide range of experiences. And many of those themes are expressed throughout these letters. As you say, they weren't the most bizarre letters. They are the most archetypal in a way. You got the large eyes mentioning a bouncy walk, skin-tight clothing, oftentimes silver, or at least uniform across the beans in the encounter, small stature, and maybe one bean that's taller than the rest of them that people seem to just subconsciously know that's the leader, and telepathy, missing time. What would you say are some of the other reoccurring themes that we should add to this list? Well, I think the most consistent reoccurring theme is failure to communicate. There is a profound disparity between us and them, and their ability to communicate with us is very limited, very limited indeed. In fact, one of the letters is called Visitors in the Trees, and this is a story about a whole family who, starting one evening with a car turning around in their driveway, and then the next day slowly escalating until the whole family was seeing these beings, non-human beings, around their property and in their trees. Now, a simple reading of the letter, you would think, oh, it was the greys, because that's what they're, most of them that they saw were described as, not all, but most. And we now we should think they live in trees. But it's incredibly stupid and short-sighted. We don't know what they were and whether or not they live in trees doesn't matter. But what happened in this experience of this family, and this is something it took me 30 years to see. I've known that letter for ever since the day it came in because Anne showed it to me right away. But what I didn't have was all of these years of experience trying to understand this. But now I do. And I saw a pattern in this letter that the mother of the family was chosen to remember the experience. And it was very carefully doled out to her in little pieces so that she would remember it. And she's taken on a kind of journey over this two-day period from one level of strangeness to another, but carefully in steps, because the human mind will forget high strangeness experiences very quickly. And here's why. It's because when you see or perceive things, hear, see, feel, touch, whatever, that your brain can't identify with past references, they will quickly either be distorted or forgotten very quickly mm -hmm. in a matter of maybe hours or days or even less. And she was taken and it carefully moved from one level of strangeness to the next in order that she would not forget. And at the end of it, she saw essentially a transformed human being. And whether we were looking at a soul in its truth, 
or exactly what we were looking at, I can't say. But it was an incredibly beautiful sort of crystalline presence kind of floating in the air. Very, very radically different from what we look like. Not a statue of a human being at all, but it's something very different. And is this complex message telling us that they are kind of midwives to a new humanity that is going to be so completely different from what we know now that we can no more recognize it than a caterpillar could recognize a butterfly. <laughs> yes, that is one of the favorites of mine in the book, The Visitors in the Trees, just to give people a little more context, because when you unpack this, it does give it new meaning, and you do seem to have found several aspects of patterns within what seemed like random events. But as you say, it starts with what they interpret as a car coming up the driveway. Later, the mother sees a woman go into their barn and she's carrying a stick and she asks one of the kids to investigate. They don't find anything. They see a guy jumping off their roof and scurrying off who doesn't look quite human. Then they start seeing these grays in their trees and the dad, the kids, they're all yelling up to him. Hey, come down, come down. We won't hurt you. Like, it's not a mistake what they're seeing and they're all seeing it. And they think that these beings built some kind of platform in their trees. Then, yes, this is where the level jump happens. Well, I guess there's another detail that the mother sees one of these beings that is holding something she interprets as a video recording device of some kind. And she freaks out about that a little bit. Right. And then ultimately, it crescendos with this brilliant crystal orb being. And she sees a pattern in the crystal and this bean that is the same pattern that was on some jewels that I believe one of the other beans was wearing. What's the jewel connection? What's the importance of the complexity of the appendages? Then that's very important. It was a necklace on one of the ones that looked human. Right. It's a clue that this might be that same bean in a different form. Exactly. And it's an evolutionary form. It's a step beyond where the being was before, because the being was a woman wearing a necklace. And now the same being is this marvelous crystalline entity. But you know, we also need to talk about something else, which is the stresses that are connected with this. These contact experiences are very hard on the human body. And this woman and one of her children were so stressed out that she ended up in the hospital for eight days on electrolytes because she was so dehydrated and she had a fever and she was really shaken up by this. And the child started grinding her teeth down in the night. So we have to recognize as we go through this, that this is very stressful, even when you're having what must have been a fascinating, extremely strange and rather wonderful experience. You're also experiencing tremendous stress. And the reason is that when the perceptual system starts taking in imagery that it can't process, the mind, you become very stressed out and your fight or flight 
sensibilities or instincts are triggered. And the next thing you know, without feeling necessarily consciously threatened, you are exhausted and in a state of post-traumatic stress. Right. This is the reality of this type of contact, which is, to me, almost proof that these letters are real. They're not made up. I'm, anyone who could say they were made up has got a screw loose, in my opinion. <laughs> but to also, can you say that the letters accurately describe what actually happened? And the answer to that question always has to be the same. No. We only know that something happened, that the hospitalization and the grinding of teeth means that it was very stressful. But did it take the form that they remember? That's an open question. Right, right. So many of the stories have either blank spots in the memory or the memory seems to start and stop at certain points where they don't remember the continuum of their experience. It's just like bookends on this is where it starts, this is where it ends. And that's strange because maybe that means they were taken somewhere and brought back. Who knows? That's what is insinuated by missing time events. But to stick with the visitors and the trees, the other element of your insight is the complexity in the things that these beings were holding. I mentioned that it started with a woman holding a stick. Eventually, there's a video recording device, at least interpreted as that, being shown. Do you think there's some logic in the symbolic language of the things these beings were holding and kind of presenting to them throughout this that also speaks to that kind of evolution? Exactly. It certainly does. And the whole experience is intended to build in the mind of the witness, the mother, primarily, to build in her mind step by step like building a wall of bricks, row by row, so that her memories won't ever be detached from this reality. And they start with just a simple thing. This automobile, it's a little strange that comes into the yard and turns around and goes away. And then the next morning, the woman, she's wearing bright clothes. She can't be missed. And all she's carrying is a stick. And she goes into the barn. But then when the daughter goes into the barn, behind her, there's no one there. And it escalates from there through a whole series of events, each one of them symbolized by holding another thing. And each thing that they hold is either more provocative or stranger than what was held before. and. This was what actually tipped me off to the hidden structure of this story, because you understand, I've known this story by heart for years, and it was only recently that I began to be able to analyze not only this letter, but all of these others, and it was like a, boy, a light went on in a dark room, and I thought, wow, I can do this now. I've changed, and why have I changed? I've changed because I have been taken along a very similar path in my life. 
I'm relatively good at interacting with the visitors now compared to where I was when these letters were coming in and when I wrote communion, because I've had them in my life many, many times since then and thought about them and worked with other people who have had them in their lives. And I built up a reservoir of experience that I can call on. So when these interactions occur, and there have been a few in the past couple of years, they're very, very brief. I can actually get something from them. In other words, the communications make sense. Hmm. Yeah, let's unpack that a little bit, because I've also heard you say this relationship we have with them is probably humanity's deepest relationship, period, yet we still don't understand the nature of it. And in terms of your own experience, I know you're big on this meditation practice you've been doing since the 70s that you learned from the Gurdjieff Foundation in New York. And then you have said that when the visitors entered my life in 1985, they used the same teaching techniques that I was familiar with from my Gurdjieff work, so I work with them also. I have been active in my foundation work now for more than 50 years, 30 of which I've also worked with the visitors. Well, what insights have these techniques and the 30 years given you into the nature of this relationship overall? Well, the most important thing is the connection between soul and body and how poorly connected we are and how we can build that connection over time. It takes a great deal of patience. We live in a world where we want immediate outcomes. In other words, I buy a book, I want to read it and enjoy it. I buy a video game, I want to play it and enjoy it. I learn a meditation technique. I want it to change my life for the better right now. But the technique that's important here, which I call the sensing exercise, which is a very important part of the Gajif work, is also important to the work with the visitors. There are no short-term results. There's no aha moment. You have to just do it over and over and over again. And I do it every day with a small group of people and then twice more by myself. I do it at one o'clock in the afternoon in Pacific time with them and 11 o'clock at night by myself. And then usually between three and four in the morning again. And the reason I do it at that hour was that after Annie passed away, somebody, probably Annie, started waking me up at that hour by punching me on the shoulder or tweaking my, pinching me or doing various things to me, all of which were both startling and quite amusing. And I realized that whoever it was wanted me to do the sensing exercise at that hour as well. And eventually found out why. And that is because it's known in certain yoga traditions as Brahmapurtha time, the time of the opening of the mind, when the outside world is inputting the least amount of information into the brain and into the mind, and the person is open. And it has revolutionized my life in this sense that first the afterlife revolution, then the next books, a new world, and 
Jesus and New Vision, and now them, all of these books were written using the relationship that evolves at that hour. I can open my mind and listen, and all kinds of things come in. It's extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. So this is just part of it. The other deeper part is that we do have a second body. We definitely do. I have been privileged to experience that being outside of the physical body a number of times. But the connection between the physical body and the non-physical, the second body, is dependent upon sensation. If you pay attention to the sensation of the physical body, gradually it integrates over years of time. And this is where people fall out on this because, you know, they want to sit and do this for a week and notice some changes. You do it for a week and you're not going to notice any changes. You do it for 10 years, you might notice a little, but you do it for 30 or 40 years and you do become a different kind of being slowly but surely in that first and second body become, in a sense, one and you become a more integrated being, and you become more awake to the world around you. Hmm. Your ego becomes a tool that you use to live in the world. And Whitley is my world walker, but I'm not Whitley. I am a much larger entity that has always been here and for a long time was silent, but isn't silent anymore. And it's because of this integration that has occurred over these 50 years of working with this exercise. Yes, well, those are great points. And even just little things like time, we are so divorced from nature and the natural cycles of our world. We're doing this nine to five, you know, artificial time. So we are divorced from the insights and the mechanisms that play with natural time just as much as we don't have any context for our other body, our ethereal body. The parts of us, the larger than human parts of ourselves, we have lost so much context about ourselves and our, our environment, even simple little things that to tackle this huge issue of what the visitors are starts to get pretty difficult, pretty daunting, considering we have to go back to the basics and reestablish ourselves within our system because we are part of it. And it's a reciprocal system that seems to have different effects on our consciousness at different times and different places with all sorts of stuff that just doesn't make it into modern Western culture. Right. It, it does not. And, you know, Western culture, it's an interesting question. It became very left brain. Remember back in the, I guess the eighties, the left brain, right brain thing came in and the right brain supposedly controlled one group of mental activities in the left brain another, but modern neurology has shown that both sides work together and that this whole left brain, right brain thing was a kind of fad. But that doesn't mean that the two sides are the same or that they address experience in the same way at all. They don't. The right brain is the master and the left brain is the servant. But that's not how we work in the West. The left brain has become dominant in the West. 
You know, Friedrich Nietzsche had, the philosopher of the late 19th century, had a parable called The Master and His Emissary. In it, the master is a, a wonderful leader of a beautiful little kingdom. And it's such a successful kingdom that the other little kingdoms around it all want to join it. But now it gets so big that the master needs to send out an emissary. And the emissary, he chooses an emissary, and the emissary goes out to rule the outlying parts of the kingdom. But he decides that he's better than the master, and he begins to rule on his own, very arbitrarily, without regard for the lives and feelings of the people he is ruling. And he assembles an army, and he goes back to the homeland and kills the master and takes everything over. And then the whole kingdom collapses into ruins. And the master, of course, is the right brain with its ability to feel, with its sense of empathy, with its regard for others. The left brain is the emissary. And if you look at our history, the left brain, when the left brain takes people over, they get very dangerous. They cease to care about the lives of others, which become abstractions for them to use in a hopeless quest for power. You see it right now in Vladimir Putin and the president of China, Xi Jinping, I believe his name is. These are people who have become dominated by their left brains, and they will ruin the world if they can. And they do not care about the lives of others, like Adolf Hitler, for example, or Joseph Stalin. The lives of others meant nothing to them, hmm. nothing. Unfortunately, in democracies, it's quite hard to get elected if you're like that, because if you can't empathize, people are hesitant to vote for you. Not always, and it does happen, and it has almost happened here recently, where a person without any access to their right brain gains power. And then they begin to kill others without regard to the value of their life. Mm -hmm. Yes, and on the subject of the state and governments, in part two, you talk about what the governments seem to know about this stuff and about the secrecy, saying, It is always assumed that UAP secrecy originated as official policy. That is not correct. Our visitors are very secretive, and by their actions, they have made sure that our policy would follow theirs. They have placed our official world in a position where it has no choice but to keep their secrets for them. I will show you how they have done this and discuss what we can do to change the situation. Well, elaborate on that a bit, because I think people consider government secretive by nature across the board anyway. How can we say this is directed by the beans themselves? That's a little bit of a different twist than we're used to hearing. Well, it is a different twist. And it wasn't that they managed it and went to Mr. President or someone and whispered in their ear. It's what they did that caused this to happen. And, for example, their emergence began in the 20th century, of course, in 1947. But it didn't begin with Kenneth Arnold's sighting of 
the UFOs while he was flying near Mount Rainier in June or the Roswell incident in July. It began that spring when we were testing German rockets that we had brought from Germany, and we were testing them at White Sands. In other words, the age of the missile was beginning, and the atomic age had already begun. And the visitors began demonstrating the danger of this. They cannot communicate with us directly, or they would, I think. And they did that by causing trouble when we launched these missiles. And the reaction was great confusion because they could see these little lights that would come near some of them and then they would explode or go off course. They didn't understand what was going on at all. No one in our world had had any experience with anything like this before. There had been a previous crash at the Trinity site, again, an attempt to show the dangers of nuclear weapons by having this object crash nearby. Completely different way of thinking and communicating than we would use because it was working by demonstration. And then the Roswell incident occurred where it would become undeniable. The Trinity incident that was researched by Jacques Vallée and Paola Harris for their book Trinity was buried and no one cared. I mean, they took the debris away and kind of forgot about it. But the Roswell incident was different. And for a certain very specific reason, it had occurred within 30 miles of the 509th bomb wing stationed at Roswell Army Air Base at the time. And that wing was the only atomic bomber wing in the world. And Stalin had four and a half million men lined up, ready to sweep across what was becoming known as the Iron Curtain and take the rest of Europe and probably Britain as well. And suddenly this object crashes within a few miles of what was then the most important and most sensitive military base on the planet. Because those bombers and the fact that Stalin did not have the ability to stop them if they came to Russia, some of them would certainly get through, were what was preventing him from sweeping across the whole Western world and plunging the whole thing into the darkness of the paranoid dictatorship that was known as communism. But what was worse is, I can't prove this, but I was told off the record, or not off the record exactly, but I was told by some of the people who were there at the time that the secret was that the bombers weren't actually ready. In other words, there were a few nuclear weapons on the base, but not many. And the fear, therefore, would have been that if this was a Russian spy device, that if it had Geiger counters or had released people who could come with Geiger counters close to the base, they would find out that there wasn't enough nuclear material there and that the 509th was essentially a bluff and Stalin would have gone ahead. So the terror was immediate in the military. But then the debris was gathered up and taken to 
right field. And, you know, the people who say, oh, this never happened. Well, I'm sorry. The fact that that material was placed on a special airplane, a bomber that had been converted to cargo use, and flown to right field means that there was no way it was a known radar target or a balloon or anything they have described. It was something unknown, and it was taken directly to right because that's where the Air Materiel Command was run by General Nathan Twining, who would later write the Twining Memo a year later in 1947, which is also proof that we have been seeing these things in the sky for many years. General Arthur Exon, Lieutenant Colonel, was there. My Uncle Mickey, Edward Strieber, then a major, was there. And the debris and the bodies were brought, and they were real. And this changed the whole nature of the question for the military. What in the heck? You know, it's bad enough. They classified it and pulled the whole thing right out of the newspapers because when they thought it was Russians, a Russian spy ship, then when they realized these bodies were not human, it blew their minds, and that's when the secrecy started. But you see, the secrecy started because of where the crash occurred and what was in the ship. Because mm -hmm. one thing about the visitors, you know, for us, death is a hugely important thing. It's not so important for them because they have a different relationship to the body than we do. They use bodies like we use Scooby gear. <laughs> I like it, man. And I also wanted to ask you about Dr. Diana Posolka's book, American Cosmic. She had some nice things to say about them. And this kind of relates to crashes and recoveries and this kind of thing. But in that book, she talks about how she seems to have been plugged in with some people still working on such things in the so-called Invisible College. And what stuck out to me was these like gifting fields in the desert where these folks who study these things seem to have kind of established that these beings will leave things for them to find quite often, quite reliably. What do you think's going on there? I mean, might there be other areas where such a relationship is established? This seems quite fascinating. It seems like repeatable and kind of something that would advance our understanding eventually. Well, there's one site where a lot of material has been found over a long period of time, even though it's been thoroughly combed over many times. And primarily what's been found there are materials, metals and other materials that have gone into things like making ultra-hard titanium medical implants. In fact, if you get an artificial knee, there's a strong possibility that the molecular structure of the titanium that's involved started at the donation site hmm. and was then patented. And once it was figured out, patented. And then the patents were sold by an, an inventor who's actually not an inventor, but a representative of the insiders who are analyzing this material. Also, high-energy diffusing coatings and other things have been 
found there that have been used in all kinds of different industrial applications, including jet transports and stealth fighters and all of those sorts of things. So a lot has been found there. Now, here's the interesting thing about the site to me, because the site is quite near an area where an extremely unusual event occurred back in the 16th century. It's where the Lady in Blue, which was St. Mary of Agrida, a nun in Spain, was bilocating to this area and convincing the people to accept Christianity so that when the Spaniards showed up, they would not kill them all. So the area, it's a bit, bit like the Skinwalker Ranch. It's got some mojo to it Yeah, that's not quite what you would think. In other words, anytime you look at this stuff, if you look at it strictly from the viewpoint of technology, you don't get anywhere. Or you get a little distance, but not that far, because there's more to it than that. There's a whole another level of law, of physics, that has to do with the human soul. But we don't understand the physics of consciousness. And as a society and as individuals, we reject the soul and have been doing that for a long time. We don't believe in it. And because that's true, we've isolated ourselves from ourselves. We're like schizophrenics. And one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. Mm -hmm. But at the donation site, you feel different. And all that whole area, you feel different. And it's powerful. And it's not the only one. There's lots of places on the earth where the planet will embrace you if you let it in a way that serves your development and your evolution into a higher level of being, because Earth wants us to do that. Mm -hmm. That's not an answer you would have expected, I'm sure. No, no, but that does get to the heart, I think, of kind of what we talked about earlier, of there just being aspects of even our environment that we have no context for it's like a foreign language but it probably wasn't at certain points in the past or with cultures who live more embedded in their environment they have a better understanding of some of these mechanisms and some of these places and the earth does seem to have a consciousness some have even suggested that these beings are aspects of the earth's imagination trying to reach out to us in a way that it thinks is familiar to us i love that insight i think it's a wonderful one because I think that may very well be what they are. <laughs> but then again, the insight needs to take another step. So are we. Everything here has to do with the mind and the imagination of the mind that is that we are part of. The organism of the earth, as it were. The earth has organs. Life is one of the earth's organs and its communication with its star and the world around it. It's just that this long, booming conversation is impossible for us to hear. And it's the same reason that a mouse can't hear an elephant. An elephant's voice is so low 
and a mouse's ears are simply not designed to hear sounds that low, nor for that matter is the elephant's ears designed to hear the squeaking of a mouse, nor does the elephant see the mouse, nor can the mouse see the elephant simply because it's too big. So they can stand side by side and not even know each other exists. But we're not the mouse only. We have a mind and we can evolve questions and we can inquire. We can build a relationship with our planet that's completely new. In the past, it was not understanding that gave them their relationship with the earth. It was understanding, it was more an instinct. But now we can come to another level. It is as if we have taken a long journey out of the forest where we originated and have now got to the point where we can return to the forest, but in a new way. In the past, we lived in the forest like the forest creatures. Now we will live in the forest like angels, and the difference is enormous. Mm. I like that. I like that. And you used the phrase physics of consciousness. I also like that. Here's a paragraph from the book that I really like, where you write about the physics define aspects of these encounters and the abilities these beings seem to have. And you write, I think that there is at least a smattering of evidence that we conscious beings are ourselves the technology needed to accomplish these seemingly impossible feats. And because our visitors know and understand this, when they do things like disappear before our eyes, rise up into the air, or communicate with thought, it's not because they possess extraordinary technology, but because they are still in contact with the extraordinary technology that is part of them, and, judging from our past engineering accomplishments, possibly also part of us. If so, they're saying, look at us, freer than birds, dancing through your skies for all to see. That statement, I would think, is meant to lead to a question, why aren't you? Hmm. That's good. And I'm on your page there. A finely tuned consciousness seems to be able to do amazing things. Well, we're in a situation right now. Mother Earth has been pregnant with us for a long time, and her womb is full. And the waters of Earth's womb are becoming turbid, just like the waters of a pregnant woman do when she's about to give birth. And that is to say, we're having climate change and excessive carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and all kinds of things like that. And the earth is going to give birth to us, whether we like it or not. That is to say, the bodies that we have now and the way we live now will not remain. It will not be like this forever and we will have to come out into a new world in an entirely new way. The visitors are here for many reasons, and they are part of us, not part of us, all of these things all wrapped up together. But one thing they are is that they are midwives to the birth of mankind, because that's what's been going on here from time immemorial. We have always been babies in the womb of our planet, and we're getting ready to be born 
dead or born alive, but we will be born. The planet will give us up because it must. There are too many of us and we will find the planet becomes unable to support us quite soon, I would assume. Hmm. And what will change is we're either going to end up with a bunch of dead bodies lying around, or we're going to be a new kind of mankind and a new body. And that's what I am working toward and what the visitors are working toward and what so many people struggling with at the edges of science where quantum indeterminacy melds with the mystery of the mind or the edges of consciousness work where extraordinary states and people using these other consciousnesses that are called ayahuasca and so forth are trying to make this journey, build the basis for this journey. We don't know what it means to be human because we've always been babies in a womb. And that's why one of the visitors once said to me, you are very close to being human. <laughs> Man, they always talk in this odd prose, but there's depth there for sure. And once again, it's been an honor and a pleasure. I have a lot of respect for your contributions to the subject, and I'm lucky to be able to have you here firsthand. Before we go, let's do the plug thing. Let me know, uh, let them know anything else that they should about the new book, Dreamland, anything else you got in the works. Okay. The new book is available. It's on Amazon as a Kindle. It is available as a hardcover and a paperback on a lot of other sites. It is also available as an audio book read by me on audible.com and on Amazon. And quite frankly, you need this. I'm not, I'm not a big pusher, but this is new and this is the next step. If we're going to ever get focus on this whole experience, them is the beginning of that focus. And my website, of course, is unknowncountry.com. I'm there all the time. I am every Wednesday night at seven o'clock Pacific time. I'm on the site in the chat room with subscribers. I'm very hands-on and I do have subscriptions that you can get for $4.95 a month and or more for longer periods of time. So get engaged in this and get involved. It's valuable stuff and it's very worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Well said. And also fun. It's terrible. Fun after all. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It is fun to speculate about. I know these experiences are often very unpleasant, but I do appreciate your candor and the application of your mind to the mysteries. Thanks again. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thank you very much. And boom goes the dynamite. The return of the legendary Whitley Strieber to my humble little corner of the Internet. Very fortunate to have him in the Rolodex, and I do appreciate his insights. This book in particular is a really fun read. The letters that he chose to cover are all deeply strange and contain a good amount of detail. And it's always been a bit tough for me to know how much of that detail to get into, because in a book like this, these stories are the main draw. 
but you know I like to get deeper into the books themselves, and two or three stories should be fair game. In fact, Whitley himself went back and added some detail in one of the stories we told in the second hour, so clearly he likes these interviews to sound complete as well, and I appreciate that. I would say for me, the story with the little men coming out of the circus billboard is probably the craziest. I don't even think we mentioned that one of the witnesses in that story did eventually see it shoot off into the sky, so it was like a flat ship or something. Again, that was part of the second hour, but you know the drill. Sign up for Plus, stop missing half the show, and feel good supporting an independent platform that actually works without ads or any of that other nonsense. But other plus show topics would be the physics of consciousness, the call of the Morlock story, the question of how deeply are we hypnotized by them? Is it just our whole life? <laughs> the circus billboard story, which I mentioned, information downloads and human history lessons during these experiences. And we got into that age-old question of if the state and the military-industrial complex or the deep private nexus and by extension the Invisible College have lost the story and the materials and maybe even lost control of the UFO question altogether. And that is basically a whole nother book in itself, what Whitley calls part two of them. <laughs> it's more of a historical deep dive into the nuts and bolts, the sightings, the crashes, the recovered material, and statements made by various high-ranking military brass. Very dense and detail-heavy and respectable in its own right. And that really just means that his book, Them, is twice as jam-packed as a lot of others. Plus, as I mentioned, additional writing from Mitch Horowitz, Jacques Vallée, and Dr. Jeff Kripal. Basically, some people's weird stuff Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and I'm sure there will be comments from people who are skeptical or not quite sure how they feel about Whitley's personal experiences. I know that being a fiction horror writer makes some people question the motive to then switch to nonfiction. Honestly, it makes no nevermind to me. Everybody has to have a job and an income. But what's great about them, for those people, is that it's a collection of stories from others who are just reacting to communion and explaining their own experiences. And part two, like I said, is just good, hard-nosed ufology research. Which to me is really impressive, because I'm sure the personal experiences fuel the desire for deeper answers, or at least the better questions. And he does have some deep contacts because of communion. But it is research that anyone could choose to undertake. Personal experience with the visitors is not required to do that. So in a way, I like it even more, because it doesn't rely on trust. It's just basically high-level UFO journalism. Either way, people have been asking for more paranormal, and I was happy to jump back into the high strangeness waters with Whitley. We actually have a couple of weird ones in the works, so those types of listeners will be very happy, I think. And higher side news, if you saw my Twitter, Telegram, Instagram post regarding the update with my studio setup, then you know I'm still in limbo. Fingers crossed I have legitimate fiber internet coming, but I got Earthlink to try to cover the gap, and as I learned the hard way, it is not sufficient for recording interviews. It dropped out over a dozen times in two hours the one time I tried. I also have legit studio soundproofing coming, but for now I have a bit of an echo issue that I'm trying to jerry-rig around. 
but the show must go on and I should probably just stop explaining myself and making excuses and just giving the good stuff you come here for. That said, let's look at the meetup calendar before we go. If you're looking to make new local friends who get it, always scope out the calendar or make an event of your own. I see people posting on the forum, on Telegram, on Twitter, on the subreddit, saying, hey, is there anybody in this area that would like to do a meetup? And that is just not a very efficient way to go about it because only a fraction of THC listeners are going to see that post on the Telegram, on the subreddit. And then of those, they'd have to be local. So really, you just got to pull the trigger, put yourself out there, make the event. I will read it on the air and the locals will come. It seems like a lot of people are just afraid to shoot their shot. They don't want to make an event and then have nobody come. But so what? You're at a bar that you picked having a couple beers. It's not the end of the world and it's the least likely scenario. But here's what we got on deck. May 13th, we have an event in Elko, Nevada. May 18th, one in Pensacola, Florida. May 19th, Pearl Blossom, California. Also May 19th, Kuta, Bali, Indonesia. We get around, don't we, folks? And then May 21st, Sussex, New Jersey. But there's a handful of the next events. Always jump in and look at the calendar if you're curious about things in your area or just make one, as I said. Good stuff. Fun times with new friends. And with that, I'm getting out of here. Big thanks again to Whitley, unknowncountry.com. Dreamland is a great podcast in its own right. But I've done my part. Your move, soul-seeking visitors, sexual fluid-extracting entities, and any and all aspects of the big them. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep It might be a pattern you've been through before Mm-hmm. Oh, you might have those screen memories Darling, wait till we get some proof Still we'll make them see And baby, I tried the camera Just a dream. Cause they-
they never put me back exactly the same way Shutting up. 